Today we continue uh, through Acts. We're in Acts uh, 21, the second story here. We'll, we'll remember that last week uh, Paul, is, uh, Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey and is wanting to get to Jerusalem. And we saw last week the amazing fellowship that he had when he found believers. He'd get to a city and now, now here not going to the synagogue, right? The, the, his, his journeys are over. And as he's coming back, not necessarily going to the synagogue, but looking for disciples. He goes and he finds disciples, and there's a wonderful, I don't even say reunion because I'm not sure he knew these people, but they're, but they're brothers and sisters in the faith, and they welcome Paul, and so much so that they're praying for him. When the word starts coming that things are not going to end well, probably in Jerusalem, they're begging him not to go. He shows the necessary discernment. It must be so hard, so difficult to, uh, uh, to have to, to say. In fact, he even says, please stop crying. Please, please stop telling me not to go. You're breaking my heart. I don't think it was making it so hard for him to go. It was just hard to see these people and have to say no to them. I wonder if we've ever run interference for the Holy Spirit here um, or against the Holy Spirit when people are going. I was talking, I was at a, a wonderful conference this week. I was actually in Louisville, Kentucky all week and uh, at a, a Christian education conference. <coughs> and it was just, it was, it was great, really great and very encouraging and just great spirit, wonderful brothers and sisters. Um, but but uh, um, I sat during one of the meals. I sat next to a young lady and and got to talking with her. And uh, so are you a homeschooler or are you a, with a school? And she said, Oh, I'm I'm with a school. I said, Oh, what what school are you, are you with? And she said, Well, I'm actually at a school in Afghanistan. <laughs> I said, Afghanistan? Uh, what what in the world are you doing in Afghanistan? And she says, Well, it's a school for missionary kids and and so forth. And she's been there for five years. A young girl. Uh, I didn't I didn't ask for her age, but she was pretty young. Uh, she'd been there five years uh, and was going back this year and said, Yeah, I don't I don't see myself coming home. It's it's where I, I it's where I want to be. And uh, wow, you start wrestling with uh, with what if your daughter said, I w I'm going to go. She doesn't have other family there. You know, uh, her dad was one time a missionary in in Hong Kong. So the missionary business is in the blood. But imagine, you know, your daughter comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, you know, uh, sister, brother, um, I, I, I think I'm going to Afghanistan. I, I think I'm called <laughs> to go work in a church or a school in Afghanistan. What would you do? What would you do? Would you, would you say, Amen, may go in peace. You know, may the Lord bless you. I mean, we'd want to do that. But we'd be going, are you sure? Are you sure that's the calling of the Lord? Let's think this over. It's a very dangerous place. We're not sure how things will go. Um, and what, what, what motivated her, what, what interesting with her, what the connection, I said, how the heck did you even get introduced to going to Afghanistan? And, and she said it was when she was at Biola, and a person came to speak, and they were, they were from there. They had not, not this school, but they had been... They were part of the ministry there in Afghanistan. It was a woman, and her husband was killed there. He was a medical doctor, medical missionary, and was killed there. Um, this stirred her heart to go. So it's not like it's all, it was just all bliss, and she said, wow, that really sounds like paradise out there. Uh, so, you know, she went knowing that the, the husband of the woman uh, there was, was killed. Um, I just think I know what I would do. If it were my kid, um, I, I would not be. It would not be one of my shining moments as a as a pastor. And it's funny because I was with one of my administrators 
uh, a female, uh, one of our principals, and when I was just sharing the story, I said, oh, yeah, because she was sitting next to me, and we talked about it later. She said, I, I just don't know how I could handle it if it were one of her two, three daughters. And I understand that. I understand that. And that's how these people felt. And they were coming before Paul and really getting in the way, frankly, getting in the way. Um, and Paul knew that, and Paul had to tell them to stop. And uh, so they went. And Paul then goes, and he gets on the ship. He loves them. There's tears. There's wonderful fellowship. And then he heads on his way to Jerusalem. Well, we get now in this story, uh, the story that's before us, which is uh, 15 through 25. Um, I'll read it quickly for you, and then let's think it through. And I titled the sermon, A Model of Love and Submission, uh, or Submission and Love, I'm not sure. And, uh, but I want us to think about those two things. There's two parts to this story. There's, there's Paul's reporting what has happened in the past. Uh, uh, like he did in, in the previous day, he stopped at Philip's house, spent some time with, with Brother Philip. Here, he goes to see James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. He's the apostle sort of appointed to Jerusalem. He's the man there. He's the one in authority there. And Paul will come and visit him. All right, so let me, let me read the text. Uh, page 989. After those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought them a certain nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So here we have this story. Paul now comes to Jerusalem. He lodges here with this new disciple. That's got to be awesome. Young believer, and all of a sudden Paul's staying in his house. What an awesome night that, that would have been for him. And the next day, he and Luke and a couple of the others head straight on for James's place to, to uh, speak with James and to deliver a report to share with him and the elders now of the church who have gathered, interested to hear what's going on out in the frontier. Don't forget, this is literally the frontier of the Christian world. Granted, Rome by this time has spread out in, into, the, into the West, uh, but, but even that, they're kind of, it's not all, it's not fully taken over all of Europe, but, but it's, it's certainly out, out West moving towards Spain. But for Christianity, Paul has literally been on the on the Western Front, he's he's been he's been all the way out there uh, into into Greece. Yeah, and it's 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 in Italy also. Peter's Peter's out there. Um, so when he comes back, he brings stories. I mean, it's been years now. 
you know, several years of stories, almost 10 years of stories that he's going to be bringing back to Jerusalem and sharing with James. And I think, though, my, my emphasis I want to place on the latter part of this, the, the strategy that they come up with, and maybe that's mulling in your head, and in some sense it should be. I, I almost should have stopped the story and, and just said, what do you think they'll do about this problem that James reports, and, and what do you think Paul will do about it? Um, but maybe mull in your head what's, what's happening there. But the first thing we have is this report, and I appreciate this for a couple reasons. One, Paul sees the need. I don't think a, a, a moral need, but a, a need of propriety to visit James, to come to a brother, and not just a brother, but a fellow apostle, and to share the news. It's, but it's also in the sharing of the news that we learn something, not learn, but have something confirmed to us about Paul and about Acts and about the early church and just the spirit of the day. And certainly this is consistent with the way Luke has been reporting the story, and we've made this point since we started through Acts, that the book of Acts is about the work of God, not the work of the church. It's about the work of God through the church. Yes, the church has the amazing privilege to participate. So it is about the church. It's just that the work of the church is the secondary, not the primary agent here. Right? The church is not the primary agent. God, Christ, is the primary agent. And so, again, we get a flavor of this, and it, it speaks to the consistency of Paul and Luke as he reports it, that when they go and report, this is in verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told them in detail the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It seems so little, yet it speaks volumes. Had, had Luke reported that he reported in detail what he had done all throughout Asia Minor, like I, we wouldn't preach about that. We would just go pass right over that, and it wouldn't shock us, and it wouldn't bother us. We'd be like, yeah, Paul's coming back, and he's telling about his trip. You know, if, if I tell you about my time in Louisville, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the things I did and the things I heard and the people I talked, talked to this woman in, in Afghanistan. I did, you know, you report what you've done. You know, we wouldn't think twice about that. But Luke makes a point, and I assume, therefore, Paul made a point in reporting it that what he was reporting was not primarily his deeds, his adventures. And they were hardships. He could have come back and whined. He could have come back and done probably what we would do, or what I would do. <coughs> Man, that was rough. I, I'm over here, they throw me in prison. I, I, I go here, I got crowds trying to kill me. I'm a, I would want everybody to feel very bad for me. I would want everybody to say, wow, you went through all that? It's amazing. And it's like, yeah, you know, and then, and then tell some of the good stories. I'm sure Paul shares some of that. But when Luke condenses it for us, he says, let me tell you what Paul did. Paul went in and described in detail what God had done through him, through him. Yes, he used Paul. We're not, we're not ignorant of this, right? Remember what humility is. I, I shared this, I don't know when, you know, from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? It's not like, oh, uh, God didn't use me. God would not use me. I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. You know, that's not humility. That's pride. It's actually the opposite of humility. It's a distorted, perverted uh, way of pride. Humility, Lewis says, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
And that, I think, is what we get in Paul. Paul gives the detailed report about what God did. And then, appropriately so, the response to this is that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They glorified. I'm sure they gave Paul a good attaboy. I'm sure they tap, patted him on the back and said, man, that's awesome. But what they did most of all, when again, when Luke condenses it, is they glorified the Lord. And may this be true, not just of our heroic adventures for the kingdom, but may this be the pattern of our lives. May our stories be God's stories. May the reports of our stories be God-glorifying reports. May it be what God has done in and through us. Because God is not only working in and through you when you're witnessing, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're being beaten for the kingdom, when you're leading people in conversion. God is at work through us in all that we do. He's the creator and the redeemer. He's the God of providence and the God of salvation. And so in some sense, the stories of our lives should be, let me tell you what God has done through me. Let me tell you what I've been privileged to participate with God in his doing. We, we would be good and wise to learn from the model of Paul and really from the model of the whole book of Acts. We wouldn't maybe draw so much attention to it except for the fact that it has been a theme that we've really carried throughout the book. So it's worth, it's worth looking at. So first we have Paul comes and he gives this report, but as soon as he gives a report, <laughs> James, <coughs> James says, praise the Lord. They're all praising the Lord. And he goes, now we got a little problem. Praise God, but we got, we, we, we've got a little problem here, Paul. We've got to deal with this. I'm sure you've heard how many thousands of Jews have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And that, that's awesome. And, and in some sense, that's also partly due to Paul. But, of course, much more than Paul here. Paul hasn't really been in Jerusalem much. But Jews have been believing, and there are a bunch in Jerusalem, no surprise. And James says, this is really great, but I've got to be honest with you. There's a rumor going around. People are saying things about you. Word from the frontier is kind of trickling back here. And the word on the street is that this guy, Paul, who apparently is doing great things and God's doing great things through him. However, he's encouraging Jews to toss Moses out. To tell Jews you don't have to circumcise your children. To say, hey, don't worry about keeping the law. And this is highly offensive to them. We can talk. If this were a Socratic discussion, I kind of feel like it should be. I've just come from a conference on classical education, and all they're talking about is Socratic teaching, and now I feel like it's preaching. Like, what am I doing up here? I need to sit us around the table and have a Socratic discussion. Because there'd be so many great questions to ask. What do you think James' motivation is in this? Why is this bothering James? Is it because he's offended, or is it because he's got a care for these brothers and, and their offense, sort of a 1 Corinthians 8 concern? Uh, is he concerned for, for Jews who are not yet Christians, who are, or this is going to end up being a, a rock of offense that they're going to have a hard time getting over? Like it would be worth. I don't, I don't have the answer, except just to throw it out there. Maybe we can discuss it in Sunday school. What you think James's motivation is in this, and what do you think Paul will do? when he hears the plan. <clears throat> so James says we've, we've, we've got a little problem here. They're, they're spreading this rumor, but, but notice in, in verse 20 he says, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And then he throws this little phrase in there. 
and they are all zealous for the law. They have not kicked their Judaism to the curb. Right? These are Jewish believers. They take this stuff seriously. Now, this would not be foreign to Paul. Remember, Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives his description of himself. I mean, this would perfectly have described Paul prior to his conversion. He was zealous for the law. He was so zealous for the law that he was willing to kill Christians because he thought that they were preaching the kind of thing they're accusing him of preaching. He, he gets this, man. He was, he was the one going around killing people on this. He understands zeal for the law of God, zeal for Moses. So James says, this is our problem. They're spreading this word. These people are zealous for the law. They're saying that you are teaching Jews, saying to Jews among the Gentiles, hey, Moses is passe. Don't worry about it. Uh, don't keep the law. Now, what do, you, what do you think about that? Is that what Paul was doing? Is this a legitimate, first of all, is it a legitimate accusation? Is that what Paul was doing? And the answer, I think, if we go back and study the, the, uh, the, the writings of Paul and certainly in Acts, it doesn't appear to be the case. Paul was not telling Jews, stop doing these things. He was telling Gentiles they don't have to do it, but as James himself says, that's what the Jerusalem Council had decided. You'll remember back in chapter 15, of course, Gentiles don't have to do these things. And he's going around and he's proclaiming to the Gentiles, no need for you to keep the, law, the ceremonial laws of Moses. Don't have to do it. And he does write in his writings, if we had time, we would cite some of them, but you'll know some of the passage where, passages where uh, Paul says there's neither Jew or Gentile. Circumcision, non-circumcision means nothing. He does relativize circumcision. He does say at the end of the day now, it, it has lost its spiritual significance, but he's not going around telling Jews you need to stop doing this. He has not done that. In fact, we know that he has actually had Timothy circumcised because he thought it would be fruitful and effective for his ministry. So there are certain times in which circumcision would be a good thing. It's just not of a high spiritual value. So Paul's teaching has relativized the ceremonial law, but this is not a fair accusation. He's not going and embarrassing the Jews in front of the Gentiles saying, hey, you all are down the wrong path. You shouldn't be keeping the law of Moses. Paul, at this point in his ministry, keeping the ceremonial law or not keeping the ceremonial law doesn't matter. It's like, it's like eating meat sacrificed to idols now for him. Circumcision, not circumcision. It, it's, if your conscience is really bothered by this, if, if you think that as a Jewish man you, you still need to be circumcised, then your conscience, go ahead and do it. But if your conscience is free on this, don't do it. It, it holds no. It's been... It, it's, it's been Relativized, it's gone. If if you think that that eating pork is 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 not good, you shouldn't do it. Your your conscience is still convicted on this. Okay, don't eat pork. <clears throat> but if your conscience is not convicted on this, even as a Jew, eat pork. Right? That was the vision of of of, of Acts chapter ten. Like these ceremonial laws have now been abrogated. The, the coming of Jesus Christ has cast out the shadows and the unclean food laws and. And even circumcision itself was like a shadow of the coming work of Jesus. But, but when the light comes in, when the sun fully appears, the shadows in that sense go away. The, the reality has come. Right? It, 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 we've arrived. 
We've arrived, and we don't need the pictures anymore. And so, yes, Paul has been doing that. But you know how, you know how these things work. You know how you, you hear something from somebody who heard something from somebody who was on a ship and met somebody who happened to be in Thessalonica who knew a guy who, who attended a meeting where Paul was preaching, and they heard Paul say, I think it was pretty clear that he told them, it, you should not be circumcising your children. And then the whole phone chain begins, you know, and everybody's texting everybody. And they see it on Facebook, and they're reading it on Twitter. And there they are back in Jerusalem, and they're like, can you believe this guy? And Paul comes back into Jerusalem, and <laughs> there's a whole, the whole city is abuzz against him <coughs> for something he hadn't, he hadn't really done. So in some sense, we do have a misunderstanding. <coughs> but not that there's no truth to it. So what do we do? What do we do about that? You might have expected, I don't know, but you might expect Paul to be like, I could give a rat's rear end what they think about me. I don't care two bits. I'm the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm preaching the gospel, and frankly, the law has been relativized. Let them deal with it. If they want to cling to the law of Moses, I'm sorry. That's a sinking ship. The days of the ceremonial laws of Moses are over. If that bothers their poor little hearts, they're going to have to deal with it. I, I, that, you know, I, I, again, I'm teaching what the Lord has given me to teach. Deal with it. Now, he wouldn't have put it in those words. I get that. But you might have expected something to that, right? I am the apostle. I'm the man God has chosen and called to go out and preach this message here. I've spent many years studying this, three years in the wilderness, time with the apostles. I got the revelation of Jesus. Right? 1 Corinthians 9. What rights do I have, Paul says? If anybody has rights, I have more. I'm an apostle. I have, I have all kinds of rights. Yet, he says, I'm willing to set them aside. He says, look, a worker's worthy of his hire. Right? That, that passage is the passage that that is undergirding your pay of me, frankly. I live off the gospel, in part. Right? It's, 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 we, we, we pay those who make their life the gospel so that we provide for them so that they can make their life the preaching of the gospel. And Paul says, that's biblical. That, that's, that's fine. We get that. But I'm not going to do it. I didn't do that when I was in Corinth. I made tents. I made tents. I took up secular vocation so that I wouldn't do it because I did not want to give you anything. I did not want you to be able to come back and say, well, Paul used us. Or Paul did this. So I, I, I just didn't do that. I gave up what was a right. I could have demanded it. And it would have been appropriate by God's word for you to have done it. But I didn't do that. All kinds of other rights. He uses that as an example. I don't, I don't, he's not rubbing their face in it. But, but you've got to remember that the Corinthians were beginning to challenge his authority at this point. They were beginning to look to these Gnostic leaders as true apostles. And Paul was not. And Paul... If, if he sounds a little defensive there, it is because he is defending his authority as an apostle. These guys are coming in and using you. I, I did not do that. Okay, I didn't, I didn't do that. Here's how I manifested my apostleship. But in so doing, he's also teaching the Corinthians about how you handle rights, how you handle privilege, privileges, how you handle your liberties and your authority. What does authority look like? And Paul, in that passage, very, very, very powerful <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 9, 
the way that he the way that he even ends uh, that little section there. Now, to those who are without the law, I act as without the law, not being without the law toward God. It's not like I don't believe in doing obedience. It's just that there's a certain law, law meaning ceremonial laws, but under the law toward Christ that I might win those who are under the law. So to the weak I become as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker of it with you. You can see what's driving Paul here, striving for this crown and so forth as he goes on to say that what's driving Paul is his love for the church. I don't think Paul had a problem in principle with them paying him or taking care of his needs. That's not, that's not the problem. But he knew in Corinth that's not going to go well. Something's going to come back and undermine the ministry. So you know what? I'll spend... I, and think about the effort then to go out and to make the tents and then make sure he was coming back and giving the attention to the day after day after day after day preaching that he was doing. <clears throat> Paul thinks. He sees the situation in Corinth and knows, not good. So I'll set aside what is a right. What is a privilege of mine? Why? So that later when you confront me, I have a stand to, you know, a place to make my case. No, the reason he did it is because he loves these people. And he's not going to put a barrier between them and the gospel. I do this, he says, for the gospel's sake. Now, James comes to him with a very odd request. James's strategy is this. And, and, he, and again, it gets to the heart of Paul. Um, again, two things, submission and love here. Because Paul says, um, uh, excuse me, James says in verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. Now, he's not saying that, hey, buddy, I'm telling you right now, do what I say. He's just saying, listen, take my advice. Go, go, let, let this be our strategy. He's not, he's not one-upping Paul. He's not, he's not you, know, manif you know, pumping out his chest. But he is the head of this church. This is his turf, not turf in a bad sense, like, Paul, this is my turf. But, I mean, it's what the Lord has appointed him over, right? If some, if some other pastor comes in to visit Africa, Steve's coming in a couple weeks, right? When Beef comes in here, if there was something I knew, I said, hey, Beef, listen, they're hearing things about your ministry there. And I think it's important we address this. They're getting some false understandings about what you're doing there. So here's how I think we should tackle this. Steve needs to understand, this is not my church. So hey, buddy boy, younger brother, all right, you're here. This is my turf. Let me tell you what you need to do on my turf. But this is the church that God has placed me in and over as shepherd, and therefore I have certain responsibilities, and it would be appropriate for Stephen as he comes in, if he heard something that was on my heart about my flock, as you, you know what I mean, my flock in as much as Christ is put me here, not mine, it's Christ. But the, the flock that God has put me over, that if Steve came in and heard something like that, it would be appropriate for him to say, okay, but what do you need me to do? Now, if I told Stephen to do something that violated his conscience, he would need to say to me, Bill, I can't do it. I cannot do what you're asking me to do. Right? Or he might say, you know what, better I just don't come. To do what you're asking me to do better, I just get the heck out of here. Or I'm going to come with Bill, I can't do that. We'd have to wrestle over that. But if it's not a violation of his conscience, if he doesn't believe he's sinning in doing it, then it's appropriate for him 
to submit, small s, to the pastor of this church who's responsible for these people and to these, to, to these elders. Here is Paul before the, the pastor of this church and these elders, and James has got a little pastoral problem on his hands. And so he goes to Paul and says, listen, listen to me in this. Here's the plan. I need, there's four guys going down to the temple tomorrow to finish off their Nazarite vow. Here's what I think would be awesome. If you went with them, and if you paid their expenses, they need all these sacrifices, they gotta buy animals. Like if you would cover the cost for them, as if to say, I'm with these guys, like I approve of what these guys are doing. <clears throat> if you would do that, I think that would go a long way to kind of squelching the, 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 the rumble out there because they look, oh, look at Paul, you know? They're keeping the law of Moses and, and paying for other people to keep it. Oh, that's great. Okay, maybe, maybe we heard wrong. Twitter, ah, Twitter, you know? <laughs> the internet, fake news. Can't believe any of this stuff. So, Paul, I think you should listen to us in this and go ahead and do this. Now, it would be, again, I think if, we were, if I wasn't talking already, it'd be worth, if we just presented this, what do you think Paul would do? Don't forget, this is the Paul who has spoken to other apostles, namely Peter, to his face, and basically called him the devil for kind of favoring the law, the old ceremonial law of cleansing, over the gospel. You'll remember that in Galatians, when the, these Galatian Christian Gentiles are eating, Peter's eating with them, and then some Jews show up from Jerusalem, and Peter steps away from the Gentiles. Because he knows these Jews are going to say, hey, why are you eating with these unclean people? The law of Moses forbids this. And so he steps away. And Paul sees in that a denial of the gospel itself. Not because he's keeping the law of Moses, but because he's communicating to these Gentiles, you are not full members. You are not full brothers. You lack something. You're not circumcised. You're not purified by the law. Therefore, I, I'll stand over here. And you are sending the message that is denying the gospel that we preach. And Paul says, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Peter. I don't care if you're an angel from heaven. I don't care if I myself do it. May I be damned. Really strong. Really strong line. So Paul is not shy when it comes to this stuff. Nothing for Paul threatens the gospel. You threaten the gospel, I don't care who you are or what you're doing, what your title is, what your role is. May you be anathema. But what we'll see here is that Paul goes. Paul goes. We'll see it next week. He goes. He'll go down to do this act. He will. So two things, submission. He submits. Small s, right? It's not like, oh, yes, Lord James. But you're my brother. And you're the pastor responsible for these people. And I think it says something dramatic about the heart of the apostle, doesn't it? A man who has so much authority, a man who wherever he goes, the church views him as the man, right? This is the guy that the Lord directly called to go do this. And he gets here to James, and when James puts this request before him, he pulls no rank, but rather empties himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient. In this case, literally, even to the point of death. He doesn't know it yet. It's where it's going. It's going to take a couple years. But this action right here, this action right here is going to lead to the thing that leads to the thing that leads to the thing that leads to his death. This is the moment. And Paul here empties himself of his privilege, empties himself of his rights, of his authority, or at least manifests his authority 
in this self-emptying for the sake of his brother and for the church. I think it's an awesome and wonderful, amazing thing. So, first, submission, and then secondly, love. What is motivating Paul here? It's hard. We can ask. We can have a Socratic dialogue at the uh, in Sunday school. What do you think is motivating Paul? I think there's submission on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's love. He loves the church. And he loves his Jewish friends and neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. And I think Paul is motivated here to remove a stumbling block. Paul doesn't have any problem with Nazarite vows. A man made a vow before God. I have no problem supporting him in this. This isn't a violation of conscience. If they ask Paul to go make sacrifices, like literally make it a sacrifice of atonement, perhaps. But, hey, I'll go. You cut your hair. I stand with you. you know, And you're, you're just blessing God, the one who, who you vowed yourself to, either in thanks or in need. Paul's like, I'll be with you in that. But Paul's conscience here is not violated. Paul is driven by love. Submission and love. Love for the people. Love for the church and his desire to remove a stumbling block from them. And I think, again, we learned something very important here, very challenging, very challenging, one that requires much prayer, and that is the need for Christian improvisation. I think it's an underappreciated gift in the Christian church, one we don't talk about a lot. But the need for Christian improvisation. As Christians, we must be able to improvise. Not compromise our principles, but improvise. When are the times you need to, you know, thinking in Paul, where are the times you need to stand up and say, brother, it, you must not be circumcised. If you, if you get circumcised, you are sending the wrong message. You are, you are going to go down the wrong path. Don't do it. And then to Timothy, hey, brother, it's really my belief you should be circumcised. Because if you're not circumcised, it's going to have a lot of doors closed for you. And if you're going to be a minister of the gospel where there's Jew and Jew, I think you're going to need this. This kind of improvisation, being quick on your feet and light on your feet, willing to think with wisdom because you've been equipped and empowered with the Holy Spirit, is so crucial for us as Christians who want rule books. We want to be able to look it up and just be told, what do I do in this situation? And I'm sorry, the Bible just doesn't work that way. Jesus did not give you a rule book. He didn't give you a guidebook. He, he gave you the scriptures full of stories and poems and songs and, and teachings. And he says, here, absorb this with the gift of my spirit and then do. Live, think. The times are different. We don't have meat sacrifice titles. That's not the issue today. But what are the issues we have to face where we have to think, oh my goodness, is doing this compromising my values? Is this promoting the gospel? Is this removing obstacles? Is this creating other obstacles? to think this through. But I encourage you to pray for this. To pray for this. The Bible calls us to it. You want to hear a wonderful sermon on this? I know Tim Keller has one on, on the story with Elisha and Naaman. And Naaman, this believer from Syria who now is converted, having the Lord, having healed his leprosy. And, and now he's going to return back to Syria where one of his jobs in Syria is to lead the king into the temple of the false god and bow with him. He, he has to hold his arm and bow with him before the false god. That's his job. But now he's come down to Jerusalem and become converted. And he's a Christian, but he's got to go back to work. But part of his work 
is leading the king into worship of false gods before whom he bows with the king. He doesn't know what to do. Like, how do you handle that? What does this mean for me as a, as a new believer now? Can, do I have to quit my job? Do I have to go die for, the, for God now? Do I have to go and say, I will not do it. I will not worship this God, Dagon. You know, and they, and they put you to death and go up for the gospel. Is that what he's called to do? Does he say, forget it, I'm not going back, I'll just live in Jerusalem? You know, it's like, this is hard stuff. Listen to Keller's sermon, it's great. And, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a creative thing he does, but he's, he's trying to improvise as he thinks through what to do. The, the book of Proverbs says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. And then in the very next verse it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he gets the upper hand. And you're like, wait, what? And yes, that's Proverbs. It's like, wait a second, am I supposed to answer the fool according to his folly or not answer the fool according to his folly? And the Bible says, you figure it out. Does the moment declare that you not answer the fool according to his folly and that because you're compromising yourself? You're playing by his rules? Don't do that. Or does this moment declare you got to respond to the fool according to his folly? You can't give him the upper hand. In what way does he mean according? In what situation demands what? This is what it means to be a Christian, to be big boys and girls in the kingdom. And you are not alone in this. You have been. Paul was equipped with the Spirit to make these decisions. And by the way, you know, the Bible never comes and says, and Paul therefore made the right decision. That's interesting too. We just take, well, it's in the Bible, Paul did, it must be right. I, I think we can argue it was a good decision, but we've seen Paul make some bad decisions, John, Mark, and Barnabas. There's nothing says all the decisions you make are right you know, when you do this, but you've, you've got to eat. One thing we know about Paul is he didn't make it ignorantly. He didn't make it foolishly. You eat Bible so that you nourish yourself with the Bible. You drink Bible so that you sweat Bible. You have the Spirit equipped, or you're equipped with the Spirit, and therefore you pray, you read, and you act, and you trust that the Lord's will will be done. And that if you fail, you are forgiven. And if you screw it up, the Lord somehow providentially will use it for good and do his work in and through you somehow anyway. That's not licensed for sloppy decision making. But let me tell you what, it will liberate you to actually do stuff. Because if you don't have that truth in you, you'll be petrified and paralyzed and won't do anything. Read, study, pray, trust, and improvise. Live, live motivated by the things the Bible says you should be motivated by, uh, motivated by. Love of God, desire to honor him in this, and love for my neighbor, love for my brother, both. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great the, the statements of the law. Pray and then improvise and get after it. That's what Paul's doing, and he's a wonderful model to us here, I think. And as we've said, of course, He's just modeling what has been modeled in Christ. And his model would mean nothing. His model would be so um, unsubstantial, unworthy, inefficient, and ineffective were it not for the fact that Christ had already done this. And that's why Paul, I think, can act with confidence. And why, by the way, you can act with confidence? Because at the end of the day, you can't screw up the cross. Christ already did it. So improvise doing your best with the Spirit, trying to be faithful, knowing that you can't erase the blood of Christ. You can't undo what he's done. He's already done it. You're doing it now in light 
of him. He's got this. He's sovereign. And I think Paul knew that, and that's why he could act so freely. So may we, though I don't, I'm not trying to make this a moralistic sermon, but at the same time, may we take up the Apostle Paul, look at him in the light of Christ, and be encouraged in submission, in glorifying God first, but then in submission to the brethren and in love for the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul, what a dynamic character he is, knowing the moments when to claim his authority and to demand submission from others, and when to so freely give it away and to submit, to empty himself, even literally, in his case, to the point of death. So we thank you for him. We believe in many ways because of him and because of your work through him. At the same time, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to use us. May we be able to report the stories of what you have done through us. And may the response be as it was with James and the elders, that everyone would give you glory. Father, soli deo gloria, to you alone, O Lord God, be glory now and forever, age unto age. Amen.